Well, good evening. Welcome. I know there's still folks coming in. Just make yourself comfortable. You have made it to the last lesson in our Revelation series, which means that you have endured until the end and you will be saved. That is what the Bible says. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. In fact, tonight, we're just going to talk about heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. So that's what we're going to speak about. Before I get started, though, let me just tell you the timetable, because I know quite a few people in our Wednesday night classes don't necessarily attend Sunday church here, and that is fine. As you can see, we've got seats, and bring as many people from your church as you want. You are welcome here for our Wednesday night programming. We'd love to have you. So I'll tell you now that we will be off. In fact, we won't have any Wednesday night programming for three weeks. So August 5th, 12th, and 19th will be off, and then we'll kick off a new group of classes uh, on the 26th of August. It'll be in our bulletin on Sunday morning, but for those who don't go here, just make a note of that. The 26th, we'll kick off a new series in here and then around the church with a variety of other classes. So that's what we'll be doing in a few weeks. But for this session, there's your number for questions. We want to finish up the book of Revelation. So remember, I mean, I would like, my hope is obviously that this increases our faith. It encourages us about God. We know more who he is so we can more nearly follow him. But I also just want you to learn some things. And I hope, uh, I'm sure you're tired of the repetition, but the book organizes itself in pretty simple format. First three chapters, Jesus speaking to the seven churches. That's worth rereading, by the way. Some of that is very relevant to what's going on today. Chapters 4 through 19 are what are called the tribulation. The tribulation uh, is not, hopefully now that we've been through it, you realize, wait a minute, this isn't a battle between good and evil so much as a, gee, I wonder who's going to win or it's the bottom of the ninth with two outs, and I hope we can drive in the winning run. What chapter 4 through 19 is really about is God judging the ruler of this world and the gods of this world. The approaches that we looked at really differed from the point of view of when does that happen, not if it's going to happen, but when, in the past, a historical record, in the future, or is it symbolic, and it's happened several times. So our four views of the tribulation, chapter 4 through 19, the chronology differs. They differ on when it happened, but they all agree on God's judgment. No one disagrees that what's happening in chapters 4 through 19 is God showing his sovereignty and power to judge the gods of this world. Well, then we hit chapter 20, and it's a different section, and it talks about this strange thing called the millennium which means a thousand years, and we see Satan bound and a thousand-year reign, Satan uh, loosed again and destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire, and then this great judgment at the end of chapter 20. Well, people disagree on exactly what that means once again, but again, they disagree about the chronology of it, but everybody agrees that Jesus returns. So, for example, that millennium, that thousand-year reign, if you look at chapter 20 and say that Jesus returns at the beginning of that thousand-year reign, that's pre-millennial, before the millennium. Some look at it and say, no, I don't think that's what that's saying. I think he returns at the end of the thousand-year reign and judges the earth. That's called a post-millennial view, after the thousand years. And then, of course, our symbolic friends who say it's not a literal thousand years. It means 
you know, the rule of God on earth, and it's not in some specific time frame. They're called amillennial, meaning not literally a thousand years, but that it's already going on. So those are the three views, but they all agree on Jesus' return, judgment of the earth. So I really want you to get a feel for how these views agree on the most important things. Now, chapters 21 and 22, the end, is what, what has happened. Basically, have the tribulation, we have the thousand-year reign, we have judgment, and now we're going to talk about the new heaven and the new earth. And, as you might expect, I'm going to give you choices. And the choices break down a little differently for this section. They break down along the lines of how literally you want to understand this language or how symbolically you want to understand this language. Now, I hate those... uh, those labels a little bit because sometimes we think literal means that you believe it's true, symbolic means you don't believe it's true. And that's not the case. Both believe that it is true. The difference between the literal and the symbolic view is not is it true, but how is it true? Meaning, what is it trying to say? Because it is apocalyptic literature. It has a lot of symbols in it. Even if you take it literally, you understand this is really symbolic language here. So a very literal view is going to be literal in the chronology of this, and a symbolic view is going to say it's telling us something true, but it's telling it uh, to us using the symbols. So we're going to look at chapter 21 and 22, which most people think is in some way a picture of heaven, but it's certainly a picture of the eternal state. Because let's face it, we've had the tribulation, we've had the thousand years, whatever you think it is, we've had the second coming, and we've had judgment. So we move now from a temporal existence into an eternal state. Before we jump into 21 and 22, and just to see what it's uh, specifically talking about, I want to close the loop with Genesis. Because those of you that have been through this whole thing, we actually did the book of Genesis, and right behind it, the book of Revelation. So I want to pull out a couple of passages out of chapter 22, just to make a point and and close the the loop, because Genesis begins with God's perfect creation, this is good, the fall of humanity, the redemptive story, and now here at the very end of Revelation, you'll see some things coming full circle. Chapter 22 says this, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, this is in the new heaven and the new earth, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Notice all the Garden of Eden imagery in this. You see the idea of the river flowing out of the place where God dwells. Remember God walking in the garden and communing face-to-face, as it were, with Adam and Eve. And so you see this perfectness restored. You see the tree of life. Remember, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they're barred before they can eat from the tree of life. And now the tree of life is here, and it bears fruit for, uh, for, uh, for every season. You also see this idea the curse is removed. No longer will there be a curse. Remember what happened when Adam and Eve are sent out of the Garden of Eden? There's a curse put on creation that sin brought into the world. 
It said, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam, and you will work all the days of your life in toil and sweat to make a living out of the ground. And no longer will there be a curse on this new earth and this new heavens. It'll be blessed. It will be good like God's original creation. One of the interesting things to me is the idea of light. Remember back in Genesis, at the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. But if you remember, the sun and the moon aren't created yet. But there's light in the universe because God said so. Here, at the end, there is no sun, but there won't be any night. There will not need a light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light, the glory of God. In fact, a little earlier in 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 23, it says, the glory of God gives it light. And so you see this full circle. Sun's gone. Just in the beginning when God said, let there be light, his glory lit up the universe. Now at the end, you see it kind of coming full circle. And then one other thing to point out here is the idea that there will be no death. Death is gone. If you think about it, when we studied Genesis, we talked about death is not God's original plan. Garden of Eden, there was no death envisioned. Sin brought death into the world. And from that time on, every one of us have had to walk through the door of death to get to the other side, to get to eternity. It's gone now. Death itself has been thrown into the lake of fire. Death itself has been judged, condemned by God. So I just wanted you to see how there's a symmetry here in all of the Bible, that there's a plan that God is executing from the time of Genesis, and we in this lesson see it come full circle, and God accomplish his plans. Every promise God made comes true in this. He fulfills all the prophecy, fulfills all the promises in this time. Well, chapter 21 and 22 are generally understood. This is where your ideas of heaven come from, by the way, largely come from these passages here. And how you view heaven just kind of depends. Some people view heaven as a really beautiful place. That's really common right now to think of heaven as the best of the beauty. Some people think of heaven as pleasant activities. Now, I realize that it's really popular to think of heaven as just the world's best golf courses, play them anytime you want. But that's actually my idea of hell, personally. <laughs> Not that I don't enjoy golf, but if you saw the way I played, you would understand why heaven is, that is not part of my heaven at all. But sometimes we think of heaven as we'll be doing things that we really enjoy. Some people think of heaven as very relational. In other words, we'll have harmony with all the people in heaven and we'll be like-minded, that we'll be holy, we'll all be sanctified. And then finally, some people think of it as a bit of an otherworldly kind of a place, you know, just sort of a, a kind of a cold place, but a place that, that's uh, not really so earth-like. All those ideas of heaven come from, generally, these chapters, and they're shaped by how you view these chapters. So let's start with the literal view. In other words, if we want to take a view that reads this very literally, let me show you how that would play itself out. This literal view, by the way, most futurists understand heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, in this manner. Most futurists like very linear chronology. 
this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Chapter 19 happened, then chapter 20 happened, then chapter 21 happened. And they like to say, unless you absolutely have to take it as a symbol, assume it really is what it says it is. So most futurists saw the tribulation that way, so most futurists will understand this in a very literal way, what I'm going to call a literal way. So chapter 21 says this. Now, what just happened? Thousand-year reign, Satan defeated, thrown into the lake of fire, great white throne judgment where all the dead are raised and the books are opened and judged according to what they had done. Then, says John, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So this idea of a new heaven and a new earth new creation, the old order passes away, and God making things right, taking us all the way back to the goodness of creation. This idea, by the way, does not start in the book of Revelation. This idea starts much earlier. The prophet Isaiah, prophesying around 700 B.C. approximately, God gives this message to the Jewish people. He said, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. In other words, the old order will pass away. Nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people joy. That's the same thing we're seeing in Revelation. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down, dressed like a bride. And that symbol is very familiar to you by now what that's talking about, so dressed as a bride. And so you see, the Jews also had an idea of history going somewhere and God was going to make something new. But here was their dilemma, and Christians split along the same line. If you look at this literally and you say, okay, there's literally going to be a new universe and a new earth. So it doesn't envision heaven as a spiritual place per se, envisions the new existence, the eternity, to be us with new incorruptible bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, everybody agrees with that, living in a new universe. So that's the literal view. Don't think of heaven as clouds, don't think little angels flying around, think of it as God recreating a new heaven and a new earth. Two flavors of this. Here's your fundamental design. If, if you think about your house and you decide that it's, it's going away, you basically have the choice of, are we going to tear this thing down and rebuild it, or are we going to remodel? Think of the universe that way. So God looks at the universe. He says, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Do I just need to, to you know, bulldoze this one? and make a new one, replace it? Or can I fix this one up? So can I renew it? And the Jews had this debate, and so do Christians. So if you think about a new heaven and a new earth, you have a couple of choices. One is whether he replaces the creation, 
The other is whether he renews it. Replacing it is the more literal view. If you think about it, at the end of chapter 20, when the great white throne shows up, it says this in verse, uh, down near the end of the passage, verse uh, 11, it says, from the presence of God, earth and sky fled away. There was no place for them. In other words, they tend to read that as, it's gone. He got, bulldozer came in and the universe is gone and here's the great white throne of God. And so kind of a replacement idea as you move into 21. Also read this passage in 2 Peter where he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, the day we're talking about. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. In other words, the universe is destroyed. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So the more literal rendering of this is generally to think of God is going to destroy the universe by fire. He's basically, it's, it's going to go away, and he's going to create a brand new heaven and a new earth. So it's a replacement for what we have. If you think about the uh, folks, uh, think of the futurists who thought that there was a rapture at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. So these, people, these are folks who the futurists believe this is going to happen in a seven-year period in the future. And the dispensational variety of the futurists said, oh, and by the way, before the trouble starts, the church is going to get raptured. Well, their understanding is there is going to be a new heaven, a new earth, but this new Jerusalem already exists. And the raptured saints are going there. They would understand when, Je when uh, Jesus said to his disciples, in my father's house are many rooms and I go to prepare a place, that he leaves, there is this new Jerusalem in heaven ready to come down when the new earth is created. And that's where the raptured saints, the raptured Christians have been living. And so when the new Jerusalem descends, it's already populated with God's people. So there's this brand new heaven and brand new universe, and here comes this new Jerusalem populated with God's people. So it's an existing place already ready to descend. In fact, a little later in chapter 21, there's going to be this passage about measuring the new Jerusalem. And so that lends credence to this is a real city. Now its measurements are about 1,400, 1,500 miles square. I mean, really big. But understand it as a physical, literal thing that will literally come down into the new universe, and that's where the saints will live, and that's the description of this. So you get a vision here of heaven, or the eternal state, being very corporeal, very physical. It's just that we go back to the Garden of Eden state, and we have physical bodies, live in a physical place, but it doesn't decay. It's intended to last forever. Okay? Interesting implication of this. The implication, and here's why people who have the, not the replace, but they have the refurbish idea, they don't like this. And the reason is it creates a kind of a dualism. So if you think about it, if you think that's what the new heaven and new earth are going to be, then what do we need to do with this one? Well, it's doomed anyway. It's sort of like the way teenagers treat cars. You know, they treat cars, I mean, if you, I don't know about your kids, but you open their door, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is every wrapper you've ever had. You know, this is the whole last two months worth of, you know, soda cans in here. I mean, 
it encourages, in their view, Christians to treat the world that way. It's like, oh, it's going to burn up anyway, might as well litter, right? So one of the criticisms of this view is that it makes us feel like the, this universe is a bad universe, it's corrupt, it's going to be destroyed, so why take care of it? So that can lead to that kind of thinking if you think there'll be a brand new place so we can trash this one because we're moving out anyway, right? But that's kind of the replacement idea. The second idea is the idea of renewing it. And this has gotten to be much more pop. The replacement, by the way, is definitely the more literal way of thinking about it. Most futurists understood it that way. But kind of an up-and-coming idea is that it will be a literal new heaven and new earth, everything like we just talked about. But it's not going to be created from scratch. God's going to renew it that Jesus is basically in the business of taking things that are broken and making them right. And not just you and me, but also this entire universe. He's going to take this universe and he's going to make it right. He's going to fix it. They uh, would look at passages like this. This passage in Romans 8, talking about the creation, the universe, waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's us. Those are the the believers get the new body, they're children of God, and, and here we come to live in this new universe, chapter 21 and 22. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, meaning during the fall, even creation got broken. The universe is broken. It was never intended to be like this. But in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as if in the pains of childbirth. So the, th the thinking here is that even creation is broken. It's fallen. It, it, God didn't intend for these horrible cataclysms and things to happen, and he's going to make it new. He's going to put it back in its original state. That's getting to be more popular way. Both of them are literal. Both of them think about a new heaven and a new earth. One of them says, trash this place. It's just too dirty, and we'll build us a new one. The other says, Jesus is in the refurbishing business. The second view doesn't, doesn't think about a rapture, by the way. Doesn't insist that the new Jerusalem is already ready, waiting for the new heaven. We're going to renew this place. And so it's going to be built. It's going to be created here. So that this view, usually are futurists that don't think there's going to be a rapture, just the second coming of Christ, but no special rapture, no special place already waiting for Christians to be. One of the interesting implications of this is actually just the opposite. If you think this place is going to be replaced, why mow your yard? You know, I mean, just kind of this is my philosophy, just let it go. And my neighbors don't like it, but I figure, hey, going to be a new earth, right? But seriously, this view says, hey, this is going to be where we live when the new bodies forever. Let's get started transforming it now. So you'll tend to see Christians who are really interested in a more ecological outlook of take care of the earth, let's put it back in its original shape, tend to want to see it as God's going to renew this place rather than replace it. So both of those views are pretty literal, but they have a really different attitude towards the current earth. Just different flavors of that same point of view, of a literal new heaven and a new earth. Okay? Second point of view. We're going to move just a little bit away from the literal to a more symbolic view. The symbolic view of chapter 21 and 22 basically says this. Just like the rest of Revelation, and most symbolic view 
of the tribulation see this in this way. Not all, but most. Say, look, just Revelation is full of symbols. So when it says a new heaven and a new earth, it's not talking about a new planet. It's not talking about a new universe. Those are, those are things that we understand that help us understand ideas. For example, remember the beasts that in chapter 13, you got the Antichrist and the false prophet, but they're characterized as beasts with seven heads and ten horns. Nobody thinks there's going to be a weird creature crawling out of the sea. Everybody understands that's obviously an image. What's it trying to tell me? It's trying to tell me that there's this evil thing called an Antichrist, and he's going to be very powerful, and he's going to deceive the world. In other words, it's a symbol to talk to me about something that's really going to happen. Symbolic view of chapter 21 and 22 basically says when it speaks of a new heaven and a new earth and this new Jerusalem, those are things I understand, and it's basically telling me there's going to be a new place to live, and God is going to make it, and it's going to be perfect. And so it's more symbolic view. For example, take a look at 21, 18, and 21. This is describing the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold. The 12 gates of the city were 12 pearls. This is where you get the pearly gates and the streets of gold. Uh, each gate was made of a single pearl. The gate, great uh, street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass, etc., etc. Well, I don't think anybody, uh, I mean, some literalists would say, okay, well, that's exactly what they're going to be made of, great pearls and gold. Symbolic view would say, you know, that doesn't make much sense, really. What makes sense is, I know that gold is really beautiful and really valuable, and so heaven is going to be unbelievably beautiful. And the gates are like pearls. You know, pearls are gorgeous, and this would be massive. It's like what it's saying is, is that heaven is just getting this vision of heaven, like think of the most beautiful thing you can imagine, heaven's even better than that. So the, a symbolic view would say there's a real heaven. It just doesn't have to be a new planet. And this is language that's helping me understand how awesome it's going to be. So that's kind of the essence of a symbolic. Where it says, these verses are telling me where God lives. The New Jerusalem, by the way, is the church. It's not necessarily a real city. We are the New Jerusalem. We are the place where God is going to dwell. The church is modeling what this community is going to look like. It's just going to be perfected in heaven. This is the view, although I didn't realize it, that I grew up with. Uh, when I grew up, I didn't grow up with any kind of real formal church going, but we did hear some Bible stories. And the two things I knew about the end of the world, actually I knew three. One was if I didn't do what my parents said, I wasn't going to make it there. But the other two things that I knew were this. The world's going to be destroyed by fire. And secondly, heaven was going to be this kind of a description, and it's an ethereal place, because there is no place that exists that looks like this. It's got streets of gold, 1,400 miles square, pearly gates. I mean, uh, it's going to be a description of this otherworldly place, that it would be like sitting on clouds, and we'd all get some wings. That's kind of a weird idea that we turn into angels, which we don't. But put it all together. And so we're floating around on the clouds, and we're all playing harps. I have no idea where the harps came from. You know, it's just kind of this idea of it's sort of an otherworldly, very symbolic spiritual place. I don't know if any of you grew up with that idea of heaven. It is this symbolic view of chapter 21 and 22. The implications of that are interesting in that 
again, you think this world is doomed. I mean, this place is just all going to go away, and we're going to a place that we don't know. We just know it's the place where God is. And we use some very physical symbols to tell us it's really going to be beautiful and it's really going to be awesome. But it seems kind of nebulous. And some Christians, when they think about heaven in this way, they just can't get any sense of understanding what is it going to be like, and it just doesn't seem all that awesome. I mean, after a while, sitting around on clouds playing a harp, probably gets boring, right? You're going to want to go play golf at some point, you know, and so we need a new heaven and a new earth. So this view understands it in a very symbolic way that it's telling us where God lives, but it's really hard to get your hands around that. And that's been one of the problems with this view. Another way to think of these symbols is, a symbolic view, is that really what it's trying to tell us is that it's a relational place. It's trying to talk about the relationships you know, this new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. Who's described as the bride of Christ everywhere else? The church, us. We are being cleaned up, given white garments, which means righteousness. We're being sanctified, made holy. We're being prepared for Jesus. In other words, we are becoming like Christ so that we can really have intimacy with God. In other words, we can actually see God face to face. Here, we're going to see God himself. And so we, it's really talking in that sense about us, that heaven, it's really not about is heaven a place. It's about us being with God in whatever plane that is. This view thinks that this is symbolic to tell us. It's not trying to tell us where we are. It's trying to tell us where we are in relation to God. In other words, asking chapter 21 and 22, okay, so where's heaven going to be? Can I, can I look it up on Google Maps? You know, show me where it is. like missing the point. It's going to be where God is. It also says, chapter 21 and 22, want to tell us the most important thing about heaven. The state of eternity is more important than the place of eternity. In other words, you get to be with God wherever he is, wherever he goes. And that's all that really matters. And at the end of the day, they've got a point. At the end of the day, do I want heaven to be a place where I get what I want? Play golf, play volleyball, fish, whatever. Or do I want it to be a place where I get to be with God? So there's really some, something to be said for this point of view. It emphasizes the most important thing, which is being with Christ, rather than, gee, I wonder what fun things he has planned for today. So you can see why this is a view that many take of this passage. Then finally, even more symbolic than that, is what's called a spiritual view of Revelation. And in the spiritual view... You, you really don't think about this as talking about heaven so much as you think it's talking about us. What is God shaping? One of the seven angels, this is a little further in chapter 21, who had the seven bowls of, of wrath, the plagues, said, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's us. That's the church. And he carried me away, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, that city is representative. It is a symbol of all of us. In other words, we are this city. It's not a physical city. It doesn't even matter if it exists in a place. That's not the point at all. The whole idea of a new Jerusalem is talking about us, spiritual relationship with God. It's shown for the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of every precious jewel. This view understands heaven as being created in us, in other words, we give the world a little glimpse, imperfect glimpse, a little glimpse, 
of what heaven is going to look like and what heaven is going to be like. I'll read you a passage from 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to how Paul talks about us. This is now talking about us as believers. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, let's see. Uh, it's around... Find this. Yeah, verse 17. Listen to Paul. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, talking about us, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God through Christ who reconciled us to himself. And then you put that with the bride of Christ imagery of the church, and what Paul is, is saying, they, they understand in this sense, and that is, you are the new heavens and the new earth. It's not a place. It's not even a spiritual description. We are the new heavens and the new earth. And so we are the inheritors of that. So it's a very spiritualized idea of uh, what we are. The implication of that is pretty interesting. So the implication of the physical is... Either this world doesn't matter, God's going to make a new one, or, hey, it's going to remodel this one. Let's get busy. Let's get busy taking care of this place. Symbolic, the implication is, it doesn't really matter what you get to do. What really matters is that you get to be with God. That's good, too. That's a really good point. The implication of the fact that this is talking about us is we need to get busy developing holiness now that heaven is created as the Holy Spirit works in us to perfect us, to make us clean. The church is heaven, in a sense. Does that make sense? So these views are different in terms of how they understand the language, but really at the end of the day, they are fundamentally agreeing that God is going to join us with him and he is making something glorious out of us. So a little different view on what it is, but not much difference on the outcome. So let me pause there after those three views, take a few questions, and then I want to get to the other thing I told you that I'd talk about, and that is, um, how do we get there? Do we have a direct flight, or do we have a layover? Question. In this last interpretation, does that mean that we really have heaven only on earth? This is it? Yeah, that's a good question. Not, not exactly. It doesn't think that it's untrue. In other words, none of these views think that Revelation is untrue. They just think it's coming true in, a little, in different ways, depending on how symbolic you think it's trying to tell you the message. So think of the spiritual view as this isn't really even trying to tell you about heaven. It's trying to tell you something about what God is doing in the church that he is perfecting us, that it's talking about our, who we become and our relationship with him, that it's not even actually trying to tell you about where uh, heaven is or what heaven will look like. It's more focused, this language is more focused saying, God is gonna judge the world and all of us who are found righteous because of the blood of Christ 21 and 22 is actually describing the relationship. It isn't even answering the question of where or what is heaven. So it's definitely a different point of view. It's just saying revelation is true. It's just trying to tell you something different than the other views think. Good question. Um, the early readers of this text brought their ideas to many of these 
concepts? What was their preconceived idea of heaven? Yes, early readers would look at this, they're going to understand, I mean, you get some key ideas, okay, there's, there's disagreement throughout history. I mean, when I say disagreement, I don't mean as in, you're right, I'm wrong, it's just, how do I understand these symbols? There's some big symbols here that just, you cannot get past. I mean, the idea of the new Jerusalem ties into all these images of a place and a people that God picked. I mean, really, think about it. Jerusalem is special to God. Why? Because it's a great city? No, it's not. It's kind of trashy, frankly. But it's because God picked it. And the Jews are God's people. Why? Because they're really good? No, because he picked them. So this new Jerusalem brings with it this idea of chosenness, of God graciously, all his, on his own, lifting us up. That new Jerusalem is also called the Bride of Christ. Well, all through the New Testament, Christians have understood we are the Bride of Christ. We are being spiritually prepared, cleaned up, sins forgiven. We are becoming more like Christ. We are repenting. Our sins are being cut away imperfectly, but that our trajectory leads to us being beautiful white garments, righteousness. So they would understand all those symbols as describing what God is doing in us, the church, Christians, fill in that blank with any of those words, that they would see these symbols as saying, this is telling you the end, that the devil wanted to make you dirty, wanted to make you unfaithful, wanted to destroy you. He will not succeed, that in the end, God is able to do what he said he would do. He will bring you through it. He will bring you into eternity, and death will no longer touch you. Does that make sense? So a lot of these symbols, very clear, and I hope that it's really clear to us. Whether or not this chapter 21 and 22 is talking about a brand new universe or a description of a spiritual place, Christians have disagreed on, well, I read it this way. No, it seems more symbolic. I think it's going to be that. So Christians have disagreed on, okay, what's it actually telling me about the place? They really don't agree, disagree on what's God accomplishing here. So I want to make sure that you understand the symbols were really clear all through history. It's really not difficult. What's difficult is trying to read a little further and say, hey, wait a minute. Are those symbols really specific New Earth, or are those symbols pointing me to a spiritual place? That is more difficult to know. But the key things are pretty clear. Good question. If we go back to the state of the Garden of Eden, um, does that mean that we will lose what we know, having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, clearly, you have to piece some things together here. I mean, will we lose what we know? In some sense, do we regress? Uh, another interesting question is, do we have much memory of our former lives, of what we used to be? And the scripture isn't very clear about that. It is clear that the old order has passed away. For example, Jesus talks about there's no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. Having just had a wedding in our house, that sounds pretty good to me, you know? I mean, that's, there are some advantages to that. But seriously, obviously some things are different in the new order. Hard to know, because the scripture just doesn't say, will we then remember Another good question is, I happen to have an opinion on this, but people think, can you sin in heaven? Are we so different then that we're incapable of disobeying God? So some of those questions, the scriptures 
just don't answer. And so there's some conjecture. What they do answer is the image of going back to the Garden of Eden is going back to goodness, to wholeness, to no anxiety, like we are right with God. There's no anxiety in this relationship. So you get this sense of peace and rightness and wholeness. The other questions, hard to know. I mean, the scripture just doesn't tell us that. But I'll settle for the peace and the wholeness and seeing God face to face. I guess if there's no sin, then we go back to that state before eating of the fruit. Yes, if you think that there's no capability of sin. That, however, is not my view, by the way, is, and this is an opinion. You know, you, you may view it differently and feel free. I completely respect that. But everything else I read in Scripture would tell me that the other spiritual beings had the capability to sin. And so I, my opinion is, I think it likely that we will too. I also think it likely that whatever heaven is, whether it's a brand new place that needs to be you know, taken care of like the garden or it's a spiritual place, it will be adventure. It will not be sitting around in the clouds playing a harp, which I don't even know how to play anyway. It is going to be adventure. Think about what you know about how we're created. We are creative beings. We are intensely curious beings. We are made for work. In other words, we're actually made to do things. We don't like sitting around forever. I mean, once we're past the teen years, we want to be doing something, right? I can't envision that that nature will change. If you think about the angels, think about what you know in Revelation. Here's Satan the rebellious angels who decided to sin, to rebel against God. Here are the faithful angels, and there is a battle. These angels are doing God's bidding in the universe. In other words, it's as though they have a mission. They have a quest. They have something to do. They are helping God do what he's doing. That's my view. It seems to me reasonable to suppose that heaven's going to be exciting. It's going to be an adventure. Think Lord of the Rings. I mean, we're going to have an epic quest here, right? Think about heaven that way. Don't think about sitting around, being bored. Think about God's got a mission. He's got something really cool to do, and we're going to be excited, and we're going to be thrilled to do it. So that's my, my bias on that. I think that's a reasonable way to look at whatever heaven is, as really exciting adventure. Okay. Um, I have several questions about Revelation 21 or 12 through 21, which is the description of the city wall and the gates and the foundation of the city. One of the questions is, why does it say no more sea? And another question is, um, what is the symbolic purpose of the 12 gates if everyone that is spared exists within the city? Great questions. Let me take care of the sea quickly and we'll go to the city. People disagree about the sea. They think, hey, wait a minute. If you're going to create a new world, what about the ocean? Some of us like to go fishing. You know, we need an ocean. Well, most people understand that either, very literally, like, hey, he's just not going to make a sea. Nobody's going to drown. It's going to be all earth. Or maybe slightly more interesting is if you think about the sea, it's always symbolic. I mean, the, the Antichrist is the beast that comes from the sea, right? So you, you get the idea the sea is not a good place just in general as a symbol. It's a place of disorder. The sea is also a symbol in the Old Testament for the Gentiles, people that don't follow God. So some would say not having a sea is a symbol that there just won't be any disorder and there won't be any disobedience. Nobody knows for sure, but that's kind of the general thinking about that. 
Now the city, in chapter 21, listen to this. We'll talk about the walls and the gates. Chapter 21, verse 12. The city had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there are three gates on each wall. And the wall of the city, verse 14, had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, the 12 apostles. So this will give us a clue as to what's up with these gates and the foundation and why 12. So you've got 12 gates and they have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Think of that as, okay, remember what this city is? The New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ, these are the faithful people. These are the people going to heaven, not the people going to hell. All right, so these are the ones who are righteous with God. The 12 tribes of Israel represent all of God's faithful people through the covenant, the old covenant, which is what we call it, the covenant with Moses. And so you get all the faithful people before the time of Christ who are under that covenant. 12 foundations, the 12 apostles, very symbolic of all of the people who are in the church age, this new covenant that we call the New Testament. So it's pretty easy to see the symbolism there that God's people, the city, the bride of Christ, is made up of all the faithful people of Old Testament times and all the faithful people of New Testament times. In other words, this is just a symbol telling you all of the people who have been made right with God are here. So that's generally considered the significance of, the, of why 12 gates, why 12 foundations, why the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, why the names of the apostles. So um, people that view this from a literal perspective, what is their version of streets of gold and pearly gates? Streets of gold and pearly gates. <laughs> I, I mean, and, and to be fair, I'm not trying to make fun of it, but if you see, want to see this as literal, in other words, read it literally if you can, is you're going to have a physical, although it's cubic, this is interesting, but this thing is depending on, it's about 1,500 miles, basically, when they measured. 1,500 miles square and high. It's a cube. A literalist view is going to say this is a physical place that, that, that is that big, and that it is going to be made of gold and pearls. It's just going to be, un and then there are other jewels in here. I just didn't read it to you. But it's just going to be unbelievably magnificent. Might as well be literal. Can God make a city like that? In, in all fairness, of course God can make a city like that. So they would want to take it literally unless you just can't take it literally. And so it really is a physical city. By the way, I forgot to mention to you, though, there's the symbolic view looks at that and says, you know, you might be right, but come on, guys. It's cubical. 1,500 miles square and 1,500 miles high, they're going to go, hey, ding, what else is a cube, you know, that God made? Holy of holies. Think about the original temple. The holy of holies dimensions were cubical. The room was as high as it was wide and long, and they're going, the holy of holies, where God was supposed to have lived. This is a symbol that this is where God lives. Does that make sense? Can you see the difference between a literal and a symbolic view? It's not that either one is necessarily wrong. They just want to understand it more symbolically and say, a cubicle city doesn't make much sense, but it sure is a great symbol of the Holy of Holies where God used to dwell, and this is the new city where God dwells. Ding, it's trying to explain that to me using that imagery. So those are, it's a, probably a good contrast there between a really literal and symbolic view. Okay. 
I've had a couple of people ask, previous classes are available online this, of this yes, series. Yes, all of these are on our website, video. It's really great because you can fast forward. But, you know, they're all, they're all out there on video, yes. Okay. Um, let's do a couple more quickly. Okay. Do you think that heaven is the release to the fourth dimension, height, width, depth, and time, to being with God with no restriction of limits of a physical containment? Some, the, the, uh, that spiritual view, anyway, basically the more symbolic view, would kind of understand that heaven isn't a place per se. It's probably or could easily be right here. You just can't see it because it is in extra dimensions. In other words, God's not a God of, of our physical, I mean, which we know that. He's not finite. He doesn't live in the dimensions that we live in, right? Length and breadth and height and time in a linear way. That actually heaven is just a way of God to describe like, you guys can't understand this, but actually they're about all these other dimensions literally existing right here. You just can't see them. So some people do understand it that way. It's like it's not a separate place. It's not a new universe. It's basically already here. We just can't see more than these dimensions. So some do understand it that way in a very symbolic, spiritual kind of a way. I couldn't prove to you that's right. It's an interesting idea. Israel mistakenly looked for a great military leader to rescue them from Rome, and they missed Jesus. Do modern Christians run the risk of missing or at least expecting the wrong kind of Messiah by focusing on the comforting images of Christ as a rescuer or a conqueror? Yes, that's a good question about what is the likelihood for us to miss Christ. And this is where these different views are going to snipe at each other a little bit. So, for example, a symbolic view is going to look at the futurist, more literal view and say, you guys are probably goofing up. You know, you're looking for a specific antichrist. You're looking for specific new Jerusalem. A, the temple gets rebuilt. In other words, that whole futurist idea, they're saying, you guys are expecting it to be that way. It's probably going to be more symbolic. And then you're going to go, aha. You know, so yes, some views think the more constrictive you get, the more, quote, literal, meaning it's, these things can't be images. They have to really happen that way. They, that would be one of the accusations is you, you may really miss this thing like the Jews did. Other point of view would be, but no one is going to disagree that Jesus is going to be the ultimate deliverer. Every point of view would say, however we're expecting it, whether we think he's coming with machine guns or he's coming, which we don't, but whether you think in what way he's coming, everybody agrees this is the final deliverance. Evil gets destroyed. We really do get redeemed. We really do live forever. Everybody agrees with that. So in whatever format, we would certainly agree that he is going to be the redeemer. Two other quick questions. First of all, who is going to be there? Who will be in this new heaven and new earth? Whatever your view of it is, how do you get there? Who are you? Very interesting passage I just want to tell you because the rest of the New Testament talks about that a lot. You know, what does it mean to be saved? I hate that phrase. But what does it mean, you know, to be rescued? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? But Revelation has an interesting little take on this. Look, look at 21, 6 through 8. This is Jesus. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink. Think woman at the well. You know, think the water I will give you, you will never thirst again. I mean, this is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm accomplishing what I told you I was going to do. 
So you see all this language that ties in. I'll give you to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. You will live forever. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And I will be his God. He will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, the liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is a real heaven-hell picture, which Jesus has talked about before. It's not new. But the idea for us is overcoming, enduring, persevering. All three of those words are used all through the New Testament. Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, there's this sense for us is what do I need to do to go to heaven? Be faithful and follow Jesus Christ. You know, it's more than praying a prayer. It is actually, I'm going to follow you because you are doing a work in me. I think there's a great picture of salvation here. Second question is, when do we get there? Direct flight, layover. I'm going to tell you, there are two really different points of view on this, and I'm just going to be fair and tell you why you might see it either one of these ways. Uh, so, when do we get there? Is it an immediate thing, or is it do we go to sleep and we come later? So let me give you point of view number one. Several things people point to to say, when you die, you go straight to heaven. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You go straight to heaven. Okay? Nobody plays Monopoly anymore. That's a bad reference, isn't it? Here's Paul. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's speaking about something else, but he is talking about I may die. So it's pertinent to what we're saying. If I'm to go on living in the body, he knows he's going to live eternally. He says, if I go on living here with you guys, this is, means fruitful labor. I'll keep preaching the gospel. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn. I desire to depart and be with Christ, meaning death does not frighten me. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. And some read that to say that means as soon as he dies, he's going to be with Christ. Would also look at thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise, right? Think of the parable of Lazarus, rich man, goes to hell. Lazarus goes up to Abraham's bosom. You know, rich man down in hell says, hey, send Lazarus, bring me a Coke. He says, can't, sorry. You know, he's up here in heaven with me. Anyway, put all those together and you say, hey, scriptures kind of paint a picture here that maybe we go straight to heaven. And some think that, that you go straight to heaven when you die. The difficulty with that is you got a lot of judgments going on. I mean, if you stop and think about it, every time somebody dies, there's a judgment. Also, what you don't talk about is, is if you go straight to heaven when you die, do you also go straight to hell when you die, right, if, if you're not chosen? And so the scripture doesn't read like there are that many judgments. In Revelation, many people read it as there's one judgment. Some views of the futurist are going to see a couple of judgments, like a rapture. I mean, let's face it, if the church is raptured, that's a judgment. You've got to know who to take, right? can't say, hey, come on up, but you're provisional, right? Doesn't, that just doesn't happen. So there's a judgment there. Then there appears to be a judgment at the end of time. Chapter 20, where the dead are all raised and they stand there. So one of the arguments with that is you've got a lot of judging going on at that, and the scripture doesn't seem to indicate that. But some of these verses kind of imply there you are. So some think that you go directly to heaven. Other point of view is, no, 
Scripture talks as though you sleep. Here's a passage of of Paul describing the end of the world. He said, listen, here's what's going to happen. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and you saw that in Revelation. You see Jesus coming with the angels of heaven, destroys Satan, the trumpet sounds. I mean, exactly what Paul said. With a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ, meaning Christians, believers, will rise first. Well, if they're rising, the dead in Christ, there have been a lot of centuries of dead in Christ. So they will rise first. And after that, those of us who are alive when this happens will be caught up in the air with them and we will be with the Lord forever. So they would read that and say, boy, it sure sounds like we're all going to rise together, go to the, the last judgment, and then we go on into heaven. Chapter 20, where you see this great judgment, is uh, the dead were judged by what they'd done. The sea gave up their dead, Hades gave up its dead, etc., etc. It looks like there's this general resurrection. Now, some have tried to say, well, how do I do this? Maybe, and some people look at chapter 20 as, it's not a judgment, it's a condemnation. That the Christians go straight to heaven, or at least they wait until the rapture and go. And all the people who aren't going to heaven just go to that last judgment. And it's not really a judgment. It's just a, hey, I brought you all here together to tell you you didn't make the cut, right? And I got the, the book to prove it. Those start to get a little complicated if you think about it. So the two clean views are, and there are pros and cons, is when you die, you go to heaven, and we just have to deal with all these problems with the, re with the resurrections. Or you sleep, I mean, or what is effectively like sleep. And at the end, we all go before the throne together. It's like if you've ever had a procedure where they use these delightful drugs they have now where they give it to you, you just go to sleep so peacefully. The next thing you know, you wake up, you're in the recovery room, and you, you have no idea. If you've been out for an hour or you've been out for 10 years, I mean, you have no idea. Well, think of it in that pleasant a way, is that sleep is like when I die, the next time my eyes open is the next moment for me and maybe centuries have passed. So those are the two views, and it's really trying, both honestly trying to understand what's the scripture saying to us. Likely, the scripture is trying to explain something that's really hard to understand with a finite mind. But I'll let you leave with thinking you're going to go straight there or thinking you're going to go to sleep. But either way, let me just say this. After you die, the next thing you will see is the face of Jesus, and it doesn't make any difference how long it is. That's a good deal. Fair enough? All right. Well, I want to tell you this. Uh, I want to thank you guys. It's been a really a pleasure to study the Bible with you. I can't tell you how gratifying it is to me as a teacher to get to study the Bible with people who are hungry to learn God's Word. So I just want to say thank you. You make my job really easy. So God bless you, and I hope to see you in our next series.